The backbone for our podcast this week is going to be a conversation between Zach Lowe and David Epstein. Though Lowe covers basketball, the summer break allowed him to read more widely, and one of the books he paged through was Epstein's Range. You've probably heard Epstein. He's been on a number of podcasts that you likely subscribe to along with this one. Lowe loved the book and gave him a good answer to the prompt that he gets from Ron Adams when he visits him. Zach calls Ron Adams the Dean of Assistant Coaches. You see, when Lowe is in San Francisco to cover the Golden State Warriors, where Adam coaches, and that happens a lot, he's asked, after they talk about basketball, what else are you reading? For a long time, Lowe had good answers, but over time his answers diminished to the point he wasn't really reading anything. I'm just watching so-and-so run the pick and roll, he'd tell Ron. That was no good. Adams would remind Lowe that he was doing his work a disservice by not reading widely. In a way, then, Epstein's book Range is the meta-answer to Ron's regular questions. Range is all about generalizing when the time is right and specializing when that's needed. NBA players can't not be good at basketball. That's the specialty floor they must reach. However, to reach their ceiling, they might be better off doing more than just basketball. This is actually kind of hard to do. Lowe says that he could spend all day every day reading just smart basketball analysis, talking to insightful basketball scouts and coaches, and watching excellent basketball schemes on replay. And we all could for our own industries, really. This was Kara Swisher's problem, too. She told Barry Ritholtz on his podcast that for work she reads the internet all day long, and I read a lot of the books I have to do podcasts on. Swisher also said, I wish I read more fiction. Ritholtz has asked hundreds of people what they're reading, and he conveys to Swisher that a lot of people say that. A lot of people want to read more fiction. And fiction might be an excellent choice. Here's why. Your job right now requires cooperating with other people in some regard, and reading fiction gives you insights, gives you empathy, and a temporary perspective you wouldn't have had otherwise. Plus, reading fiction aligns with Epstein's findings of when generalists succeed. Ranginess works in what Epstein calls wicked environments. As he says in one interview, the difference between cancer research and Jeopardy is that in Jeopardy we know the answers. Golf, piano, and chess are all fixed, tight, non-wicked environments, and so repetition works there. It helps to practice your swing, it helps to practice key progressions in the piano, and it helps to study chess openings. Ranginess happens to work everywhere else. This week we'll focus on one room where we all need more ranginess but don't typically have it. We'll give some here's why answers, because unlike Zach Lowe, it's not usually that we aren't reading something interesting, but that we have to say, here's why what I'm reading is interesting, helpful, and rangy. The room we're going to spend time in this week is a meeting room, and the first meeting mistake is not arguing well. How can someone demonstrate ranginess in a meeting? By disagreeing. Last week we talked about the importance of names, and here's the name of a mental shortcut that can lead to disaster. The next. The next whatever almost never is. 
There's a joke on financial Twitter that being coronated the next Warren Buffett is a curse worse than mean reversion, and ditto for Steve Jobs. Do you remember Elizabeth Holmes? She was the next Steve Jobs. In basketball, the next comes up in player comparisons, but Epstein points out that the comparison outweighs the evidence. He said, If you give people the exact same scouting report, but change the name of the player, you analogize them to, that completely changes how they evaluate the player. So if you say a player is like a five-time all-star and a name everyone recognizes, that player will be highly evaluated versus if you have the same statistics and you compare them to someone who only played a year or two in the league. Years ago, before basketball analytics was the size it is today, in 2019, Michael Lewis wrote about the moneyballing of basketball. In that profile of Daryl Morey, who had an interesting way of avoiding the pitfall that comes along with the next trailhead. If a scout, coach, or player wanted to compare someone to someone else, they had to choose someone of a different race. That forced work and bypassed this mental shortcut. Good decisions tend to be made by what Epstein and many others before him call foxes. What we want to grab onto here was this quote, they politely antagonize each other. That's good, that's great. Good decisions come from people who disagree, which also takes work, which takes the work that's required that doesn't happen when you compare someone to the next. Now when you hear the next, think someone's taking the easy way. In some ways, it makes sense that the Golden State Warriors earned and enjoyed so much recent success. A combination of good luck, like player health, good timing, like player contracts, and good decision-making, a Silicon Valley approach, just wait for that, helped them win three recent NBA titles. In both venture capital and in basketball, it's much more important to hit one home run than four singles. The total bases are the same number, but the distribution of results is different. Four single bases is different from four bases all at once, even though the total number of bases tends to be the same. In the NBA, for example, it's better to have one great player, two good players, and two not-so-great players than to have five good players. Teams know this, and it's reflected in the kinds of contracts players get. For the 463 players under contract for the upcoming NBA season, the average salary is $8 million a year, but the median is only $4 million a year. The way these kind of power law distributions are best explained to me is to imagine you're in a room with people that you know, and you take the average salary of everyone in there, and you'll get something that is probably pretty close to the median salary of everyone in there. But then, if Bill Gates walks into the room, he is going to throw the mean salary to a very high level, whereas the median salary will still be in the middle. And that's a good way to think about power law situations. Scott Kapoor, a venture capitalist at the firm A16Z, talked about how they disagree and how they politely antagonize each other and don't follow easy stories about the next. Kapoor said that in meetings they don't look for consensus, but instead they have a debate to see, are the people who were advocating for that deal still pounding the table at the end of listening to all the objections and crazy ideas their partners are throwing at them? 
That's good debate. That's how to argue well. Consider this example. Imagine that you're in charge of the World Health Organization, and you have to present a case to two different groups. One group is a group of redound epidemiologists who have decades of experience solving these kind of large-scale health situations. And then the second group is a group that is a collection, a hodgepodge. You have an epidemiologist, an anthropologist, you have a family medicine doctor, a data scientist, a fashion designer, and let's bring Bill Gates back into this. The epidemiologist group is going to converge on a relatively narrow, relatively contained domain of knowledge, epidemiology. They are going to draw their answer from the best practices of what's in their field. Our alternative group will have more conflict. They'll come up with more ideas. They'll have more of an outlier, uneven distribution of things that might work and things that might not work. What's key about being rangy is finding things that may be right and will certainly be different. We started this episode thinking about how NBA basketball players have to have a certain floor of ability. And that's what our two World Health Organization groups would have to have as well. They couldn't just be children with a box of crayons solving these kinds of problems. But if you have smart people, you have people who are competent, you have people who understand how systems work, and you give them a problem, you're very likely to get different solutions that are also successful solutions. Let's move on to our second meeting mistake. Not getting top-down support. The most important person in the room is always the President of the United States, or your organizational equivalent, whichever is more prestigious. In the book Ike's Bluff, we can see the kinds of conditions that healthy debates thrive in. Mostly, it's when your boss takes the other side, or at least has an open side. Part of what made Dwight D. Eisenhower a great boss and consequentially a great president was that he was both experienced and he was rangy. He was specialized, but he was also a generalist. His diary kind of reflects this. After his first day as president of the United States, he wrote, Plenty of worries and difficult problems, but such has been my portion for a long time. Evan Thomas, the author of the book, portrays the meetings and debates this way. Planning and discussion brought Eisenhower time when he figured out what he wanted to do. The mere presence of a president can be intimidating. Advisors tend to fawn or clam up, but because of his open and direct manner, his winning smile, and his determination to pass credit down, well, most of the time, in taking blame up, Ike was able to keep open a genuine dialogue with his staff. We've all been in situations, we've all been in rooms, we've all presented to people who there's a certain discretion to them. There's a certain looking up to, an admiration, a hierarchy of group dynamics. And sometimes it's hard to look up and to put the other person down because of objective feedback or because of interesting ideas. Eisenhower allowed that. He was president from 1953 to 1961, and the elephant in the room at the time was nuclear weapons. The atom bombs had been dropped, the Korean War had ended, and the superpower shouldering for a seat at the table was in full force. The question was, how much force should the United States use? The executive branch's consensus was that bombs shouldn't be used again, ever, unless it's the last possible option. 
However, if everyone knew that both domestic advisors and foreign enemies would play a different game, so Ike pretended otherwise. Here's another quote from the book. At an NSC meeting on February 11th, only three weeks into Eisenhower's presidency, the question of using nuclear weapons in Korea had come up for the first time. General Mark Clark, the U.S. ground commander, warned of a buildup of Chinese troops around Kaesong, the ancient Korean capital. The area was chock full of troops and material, apparently massed for an attack, Clark reported. According to the NSC's official note-taker, Eisenhower expressed the view that we should consider the use of tactical nuclear weapons on this area, which provided a good target for this type of weapon. The remark seemed to come out of the blue. General Omar Bradley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and General Eisenhower's lead ground commander in Europe in World War II, offered a note of caution. Accustomed to Ike's provocations, knowing they were often intended to stimulate debate and not dictate policy, Bradley interjected that it was unwise to broach the subject yet of possible use of atomic weapons. He reflected the view of many ground commanders that nuclear weapons were last resort strategic weapons unsuitable for the battlefield. So look what happened here. We're very early into the Eisenhower presidency. There's a situation going on. It's a very turbulent time. There must have been someone in the room who didn't want to just sit there and had to do something where someone felt like they needed to take action or else something would happen. And you have two of the most senior people. You have General Omar Bradley and you have uh, President Eisenhower taking opposite sides on a crucial issue. Now imagine that kind of support that everyone who is lower in the hierarchy, which is everyone else in this room, had when they saw that their two bosses, the two men that were in charge, had taken different sides of the issue. This happens in venture capital. This happens in successful organizations. In one podcast interview, Mark Andreessen says that he likes to take the opposite side of Ben Horowitz's positions as a way to frame to his staff that either side is okay. They're just looking for the truth. Eisenhower's closest advisors saw this tactic over and over. If he had a meeting on the same subject with different people at different times, he would adopt one perspective in the first meeting and the opposite in the second. Good debate stems from the top, and it's not just at the highest office in the land. It happens all the time in the NBA, said Zach Lowe. One particular trade made by the Brooklyn Nets left some staffers too, as Lowe put it, overwhelmed by ownership's desire to go for it, and too scared to come out and say, this is dumb. What's the problem in the NBA? Why can't they stand up? Because they have a principal agent problem. At the end of the podcast, Zach Lowe said that the number one motivator in the NBA is job security, and Epstein agreed. He noted that the next step down from the NPA is probably a pretty far step down. Employees have to see their bosses model disagreement and trust for real disagreement and real trust to happen in an organization, and you're going to have disagreement and you're going to have trust if you're going to have people who are acting in a rangy manner. Once an organization argues well and gets top-down support, they can start to decide what they're really talking about. And there's a spectrum of legibility that we want to look at for this section. We want to think about three waypoints. First, things can be invisible. These are the unknown unknowns, the latent needs, or the black swans. The next waypoint on this spectrum is salience, the recognized but not quantified. The third part, 
the third measure, is when something is measured. The metrics an organization deems important. And every bit of information exists somewhere on this spectrum from invisible to salient to measured. One example we've seen move from one end of the spectrum to the other is ride sharing. No one articulated the need for people driving their own cars because it was a latent need. People needed it, but no one really understood it. You couldn't put your finger on it. And part of the reason was is because the technology wasn't advanced at the time. Ride-sharing needed to have smartphones. Those two things had to co-involve, like so many things that depend on technology do. But then, when Uber and Lyft began to grow, the demand for cars became salient, and the company names turned into generic vowels and nouns, just like Kleenex or Xerox. Then the company started to measure and track and give feedback with stars, driver bonuses, and profits, or is it still losses, each ride that they take. So ride-sharing moved from a latent need to something salient to something measured and tracked. Our meetings tend to get muddled around the middle, salience. There's a there there, but we just don't know what it is. Without ranginess, ideas are kind of still invisible. Zach Lowe said that his favorite people to talk to are the ones who are going to say something I never would have thought of and take my brain in a different direction. They're people who move low from invisibility to salience. Another tricky point is the next step from salient to measured. Sabermetrics is one example, and Shane Battier was the first no-stats all-star that got a lot of attention in the media. But what is it that an organization or a person should measure? When we start out, we tend to measure easy things, whatever is first available to us. We see this in baseball with the early tracking that has moved to the Sabermetrics and the acronym that longtime baseball fans don't understand anymore. We see this in basketball with the rise of three-point shooting. Something was latent, something was invisible, it moved to salient, and now it's moved to measured. We see this in organizations and activities like writing. Writers have a very easy measurement, the number of words they wrote each day. But if you talk to writers, if you look at what actual writers do, the words are only a small part of that. And that's a warning for when we move from salient to measured. It's not always what's easily measurable that's most important. What writers will tell you is that they spend so much time researching, they spend so much time rewriting, they spend so much time taking breaks, or so much time being rangy and coming up with new ideas. So while number of words is an easy metric to have, it may not be the only metric that matters. So that's all you have to do in your next company organization, or family meeting. Keep those things in mind. Don't make mistakes about being too much of a specialist. Don't forget to argue well and avoid the next pitfall. Don't forget that you need top-down support. You need these kind of attitudes and ideas and ethos modeled. Don't forget about the spectrum from invisible to salient and then to measured. This is all very hard. Even if we remember all of this stuff, it's really hard. Lowe addressed this in his podcast. He said, I think what frustrates people about this whole decision-making arena is there's no way to know. You can't know. This is something that the Wharton Moneyball podcast talks about all the time. Wharton professor Cade Massey said this, We have a name for this in academia, irreducible uncertainty, and people don't like to acknowledge and accept irreducible uncertainty. 
The problem is, is that stories, stories have this cause and effect nature. This happens and this happens, this happens and this happens. We're all so smart after the fact. Hindsight bias is always 20-20. But there's more to good decisions than telling a good story after the fact. Because all of our decisions have to made, be made before something happens, not after. One way to get better at decision making ahead of time is to be rangy. How? Like read more fiction. Avoid the next trailhead. Argue fairly and vigorously, especially an outlier and winner take most competitions. Embrace intellectual diversity and weird teams. Create the right culture from the top down. Avoid the principal agent problem and its CYA cousin, cover your ass. Make the hidden salient and the salient measured, but do it carefully. Thanks for listening this week.